hey, I'm Craig Finn. My new album, Legacy of Rentals, deals a lot with memory. How we remember people that are gone, places that have changed, major events that are part of our past. When I made the record, I was thinking a lot about the imperfections of memory and the distortions that happen to our own stories when stretched by time and distance. To go alongside the album, I created this podcast called That's How I Remember It to examine the connection between memory and creativity. Each episode features a discussion between myself and one creator about the role that memory plays in their art. These conversations reveal different ways that each creator synthesizes their remembered life experience to tell stories about themselves and the world we live in. Today, we are honored to be joined by Edward, or Eddie Kitsis. Eddie has had a massively impressive career as a TV and film writer and producer. Alongside his partner, Adam Horowitz, he's worked as a writer on TV shows like Lost, Felicity, Popular, and many, many more. Eddie and Adam created Once Upon a Time, which ran for seven successful seasons on ABC, as well as a spin-off, Once Upon a Time in Wonderland. They also wrote the screenplay for the feature film, Tron Legacy. Eddie's also a major fan of music with a specialization in the Beatles and the Grateful Dead. On top of all that, here's the twist. He's been my best friend since eighth grade. <laughs> that means Eddie has been in the party pit. He's burned the carpet at the Thunderbird. He's attended the same Nassau Coliseum show I was at. I could go on and on, but on the topic of memory, we have much to discuss. The history's rewritten when the memories get meddled with the way that I remember it. Welcome, Eddie. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me, Craig. This is going to be fun. I'm going to just jump in and the question that I start everyone with, which is this. Do you consider yourself to have a good memory? I consider myself to have a great memory. I feel like I have um, great recall of things that happened a long time ago, but not necessarily what happened yesterday. And how do you think that's helpful in your career as a writer? I think it's essential. I think that, you know, so much of writing is problem solving or you're trying to tell a story and memory is what fuels it. You know, uh, we, we have a term in the writer's room called a hollow bunny right? Because there's two kinds of Easter candy. They're, they both look great. They both look like bunnies. But when you bite one, it's solid. The other one's hollow. And I feel like those memories, those, those emotions you have is what makes it solid, you know? Right on. Yeah, that, that's amazing, actually. When you're writing something, I mean, this, this is kind of jumping ahead, but like so much of what you're known for, Tron, Once Upon a Time, Lost, are things that happen to kind of in, um, you know, fantasy or not, you know, super grounded in what we, you know, the reality that we live in. But memory still seems to make it into those stories, your personal memories. Yeah, I, th I think it's a lot like having worked in genre, whether, whether it was on Lost or whether it was Tron, you know, you are, those memories and those emotions are, are what's fueling it, right? So like, even though it may seem like it's a scene between the evil queen and Snow White, that may just be a conversation or something that happened to me when I was 10. And you've just figured out a way to redo it in television um, or thematically. I feel like whatever memories or things that shaped you are also the themes you always return to. In general sense, um, you know, w when you think of your memories, what other senses are involved? Like do you, are the smell, taste, et cetera? Yeah, I feel like you, it's weird when you can remember a smell, but you can't smell it, I feel like is weird. A great memory, I feel like is a time machine. And sometimes 
I can literally, I feel like I get so lost in that memory that I really feel like I'm back in 86 or I'm back at college. And then you pop out of it and you realize where you are. It's like a quantum leap thing. So, you know, I know you're a big music fan, obviously something we bond on. Um, and I've, I've asked my other guests this, um, when you think about albums, music, and I, I think I already know sort of the answer to this, but, but you, do you, are there seasons connected? Like, are there, are there time of the year to every, I mean, to, to um, and could you give me an example? What's a, what's a, what's a fall album? I'm going to say two fall albums that also are, that I know they're fall albums because you and I listen to them in fall. One is Tim replacements that will always remind me of fall and every fall I listen to it and very like every fall I listen to it and very rarely in summer. The other one would be, you know, REM's Life's Rich Pageant. Like uh, those two to me are fall. They are the fall of, uh, you know, and, and so I always listen to them then. I, I, this came up actually with Patterson Hood and these, both these albums came up and, and agreed on, uh, Tim, it came out in the fall, always going to be a fall album to me. Life Search Pageant. I also agree. I also said Reckoning is a fall album. Well, Reckoning's a fall album because you played me the cassette at your house after school. And so it became our fall album because we became so obsessed with that album. I mean, Pretty Persuasion is like one of the songs that I feel like fueled us through ninth grade. Absolutely. And, you know, but it was because Patterson's just a little bit older than us. And he was like, what are you talking about? That came out in the spring. And I was like, well, I didn't, I didn't hear it when it came out. I heard it at the beginning of ninth grade. And so it forever will be a fall album for me. Yeah. The, the weird thing about memory also is as you get older dates, since there was no internet, when we grew up dates go by and then they become. So I always thought, you, we went to go see the replacements in the snowstorm in fall. And then one day you were like, no, that was February. And I was like, no, that's it. And at that, at first I was like, it can't be my memory. It's a timeline shift. We're in a different timeline, but it's like, no, in my head, those things conflated. I think, you know, I, I see that a lot in like, when I look at um, like posters from the nineties, cause the nineties really run together for me just because of the age we were at. And I, I look at it and I'm like, why don't some of these bands start to put years on their posters? Because I see October 3rd and I'm like, that could have been 92 or 98. I don't know. Yeah. Um, because things flatten out on that. No, you know, when things do flatten out, are you more likely to remember a, good experience or a bad experience? Like, like when you look back? Well, a truly bad experience is always going to be something I latch on to and a really great experience. Yes. If, if it's just like, it was, yeah, that was a good day. That's going to be lost. But you know, I think like any extreme, but definitely there are like, I think everyone can go back and say, here are the five best days of my life so far in the five worst days. Sure. I, I, what, what I kind of interested in is I wonder if there's some sort of built in um, survival or, you know, adaptation thing that like, like when I was staying home and we were all at home for the pandemic, 
I wasn't like, you know, what's the worst about touring is when you're just bored and sound check isn't happening yet. And, you know, you don't remember the things that like are mildly annoying. You just remember the part where you rocked the best show and you're like, I, I could be doing that right now. You, you know, there's no part of you is like, oh, and the mic shocked you. All the filler songs fade away and you only remember the hits. Even even if it was a time period you weren't that great about, as you get older, you're like, well, at least, you know, I did, I was young. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think that there's something in our in our that that sort of saves us from like, you know, it flattens out and we remember just the peaks. And maybe I know of course just the deep valleys too, but I think most of it's the peaks and I think that's probably good and probably healthy. I think it feels you, right? Cuz that's like, okay, it's like I had that day once, I can have it again. Right, you're chasing that you're chasing the high of the good. You're chasing it. Yeah, you're chasing the high of that. Whatever that is in your life. There are like two or three days in your life that were so good that you spend the rest of your life chasing that feeling again. Do you have any um, times in your life that you like a gap in your memory? Are there periods that you remember less of or differently? I feel like I have a pretty good memory because I'm very reflective. I think as a writer, you're always searching your past for something that helps you in the future. So like, I don't have like, I had a friend who was like, I don't remember three years of my life. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. I remember, I remember those three years really well. So I, I, you know, gaps change and things blend together. And sometimes I've also found is stories that you've heard and lived with for 40 years, you think you're in, and then eventually you realize, wait, I wasn't there. So that can happen. Well, yeah, we're going to get to that. I, I, I just, you know, I, I've, I've been brought to this. Um, I've, I've been thinking about that. Look, we met. We met in fourth grade, but we, we became friends in eighth grade. And in eighth grade, we were neither of us were at our peak. We peaked later. Thank God. We yeah, it was we were the only two students at the school who still looked eight while everyone went through <laughs> puberty. So that was immediately going to bond us. Um, but fate put us together because our lockers were next door to each other. People don't don't realize if our lockers weren't next door to each other that year. Who knows? Yeah, and, and my parents moved around the corner from. Yeah, that parents, was a so big that one. helped a lot. You're on the but, wrong you know, side of the park. <laughs> up to then, moving on up. I think that I really remember those sort of dark years, my junior high, where I struggled a bit, a little in in black and white, like in 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 a um uh. And so when I changed schools and things started to go better, there was this Wizard of Oz like the door opens and you see the you see that the world has Technicolor. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So I I I while I do remember the bad moments, I sort of remember them in a different cue. But on this on this specific eras in books, movies stories, whatever, that you're drawn to, I guess, because of your age and, uh, and any memories you have, are there, are there specific eras that, you know, you, you go to? I mean, musically, I think I'm usually 65 to, you know, 85. I feel like 90% of what I listen to takes place between those years. It's very rare now that I listen to something new. And now with the internet, I, I go back. I think, you know, for movies, definitely, you know, I love 50s, 60s, 70s, especially those early 70s character piece things. Like like what would be an example? Oh, Shampoo, um, Harold and Maude, uh, Chinatown, um, you know, that, that, that whole era, 60s French films, you know, Truffaut and Godard I loved. You know, because I was a film student. 
I have sort of a theory that like, as we are forming memories as people, those eras are very attractive to us because they sort of are right on the tip of our proverbial tongue, you know? So like stuff like 73 and 74 to me, I love because I think that's when my body, I was actually starting to remember. Yeah. I feel like 73 was when I woke. Like I have a couple memories in the crib, which is, is odd, but like, I remember turning two and, and 73. And I feel like that was the beginning of like, I was up as a person. Like I started to have memories. Do you, what about these crib memories? Just, just being in the crib. Is there anything more vivid than that? Yeah. I remember two things. One, I, I, I shared a room with my sister. And she loved, it was the early seventies and she was eight years older than me. So she was like, um, you know, she was like nine, 10. And I remember every night she would listen to the Osmonds, loved the Osmonds. And, and so like, that was like the first, I think music I started to hear was my sister's, but I was too young to process it. Yeah. You know, I was wondering about your, um, how you, your your sister and your brother are significantly older, what, eight and 10 years, probably? 12 and eight and a half. Yeah. So so having those kind of pop culture things around the house um, of, of, you know, kids that are older, I would think affect your memory and maybe affect how you chose your career. Yeah. I, you know, it's it's interesting because having older brothers and sisters means you you retain what they like because they're your first influences. So like, you know, my brother was loved Led Zeppelin. And that's where I learned about Led Zeppelin and rock and roll. And he had a really 70s burnout, teenager basement. You know, he put his own lock on it so my parents can come and he had black velvet things and he had a bong. And he was just everything I was told never to be. And I was like, I fucking love this. He's so cool. And he would wake me up in the middle of the night, which could have been 10 PM, but I, he would literally come and get me when I was two and three and he would bring me down and he would literally just take bong hits in this black light thing and play Zeppelin with me. Cause he just, he liked having this little kid. And I will never forget one day I spilled his bong and he, and he just got so mad at me. I started crying and ran away. And it wasn't until college that I realized cause it smelled. <laughs> <laughs> great great the the thing that made me think when you talked about the osmonds and your sister when i watched licorice pizza and there was that scene at the beginning where the they they go to the lucille ball sort of variety show and 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 i thought they just nailed that scene so i was like that's what tv looked like when i was four that's what tv that's exactly what it it's was why like. the muppet show was a variety show and it's why like kids today don't understand what it was like that, oh my God, there's a Halloween special tonight and the Osmonds are doing it and Kiss is going to be on or someone else is going to be on or some comic you liked. And that's that was like a huge joy. And that's how you got exposed to things. Yeah, there were like little five minute segments where you had, you, you saw so much in an hour rather than this, you know, committed hour to one thing. Like there's, there's always things coming and going. Uh, are there other TV shows that kind of make you nostalgic or kind of hit that memory place for you? Yeah, the first, the first two shows that absolutely influenced me were, I had neighbors. Um, as you know, I grew up in this smaller town in Mankato until I was nine. And I had these neighbors and they would come home every day after kindergarten and I would go over to their house and we would watch Batman and then the monkeys. And I loved, I mean, Batman was genre and I loved the camp factor. 
you know, at the time I took it really seriously, but I loved it. And, and then the monkeys, and I think those two things spoke to me, which is why I became so obsessed with the sixties, but the monkeys were the first band I liked on my own. And so I would come home and be like, I want to, I want a monkeys album. I want a monkeys album. And my brother, because he was a kid in the sixties was like, here, take mine. And I gave me monkeys greatest hits. And I wore that out. I mean, from two to like six years old for four years, every night when I went to bed, I had to play side two of Monkey's Greatest Hits with Pleasant Valley Sunday as my favorite. I was going to ask you about favorite, you know, first musical memory and first TV memory, but it seems to me that they're combined. They, they really were. That's amazing. I actually, for the record, my first musical memory was also the Monkeys. I mean, I saw them and I wanted to be in a band and, um, it looked fun and it looked like you could just burst into song. I, I got the idea that girls like them and I probably was right. It, it really just looked idyllic to be with all your friends all the time and have the option to play music. Yeah. I also think that, you know, for me, like Craig knows, I, I wanted to move to LA my whole life. And, you know, my father always wanted to move to LA and my father always wanted to be in show business. So I'm sure, you know, a therapist would say, well, I guess that's why you're here. <laughs> When I would see them and they'd go to that opening when they were on the beach with the surfboard and they fell and they just had this great California life, I was like, that's what I want. I want that sunshine daydream. So thinking about this LA, like, do you think, and I, and I live in New York, you live in LA. Do you think for people our age, there's like memory and then movie slash TV memory? I mean, do you feel like sometimes you're in LA you know it from you, you live there, but also from television or, or New York's the same way. Yeah. I, in fact, in fact, you know, some of your, my first memories were like the, the field of, of bad news bears. <laughs> right. And it's on Sepulveda and like, and you pass it. And sometimes I'll be driving and I'll, and it'll, you know, the, the sun looks just like it did in those seventies when you would turn on HBO and it just feels like this is, you know, sometimes I'm driving through the valley and I'm like, this feels like Brady Bunch, but in a really good way, in a good way. I mean, when you lived in Sherman Oaks, there was a Brady Bunch vibe to the neighborhood. And I think that's because it was shot there, right? Yeah. I mean, it was probably shot in a soundstage, but they did some second unit. But our, our memory of what we thought, you know, California looked like was shaped by that. And New York, too. I mean, you know, I've lived in New York since 2000, and I think about, you know, watching Sesame Street as a kid, and you see a playground, you know, that's all that's all asphalt. And, like, you know, growing up in the Midwest, we didn't have all asphalt play playgrounds for the most part. And But, you know, it's, it's something like, oh, that's always been burning. And all that, you know, stoops and, and, and traffic and all that were, was not part of my reel. Yeah. Do you remember the elementary school in Hennepin in Uptown? Yeah. Uh-huh. Every time I passed that when I was young, I thought, oh, that's a Sesame Street school. Because <laughs> it, it was inner, you know, it looked like it was in the city. It had the concrete. Yeah, it, it had less grass than we were used to at our school. But yeah, it was uh, um, absolutely. I think like the Croft Superstar stuff also is the other, um, that HR Puffin stuff, that sort of trippy early 70s, late 60s uh, thing that like kind of mashed psychedelia with children's stuff is very nostalgic to me and, and, and triggers a very specific. Memory. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I made a career out of it. So <laughs> I, mean, it, I think that's why we clicked so much was we when we met in eighth grade, 
we didn't realize that since fourth grade, you and I had the exact same references. So it was like, yeah. And by the way, even a year ago, I sent you a picture from uh, Malibu where I said to you, is this total Sigmund sea monster? Like it, those things don't ever go away. When you store those loves, those memories, they just fuel you. And, and you're like, you don't get over this. You don't want it. Hey, I'm Craig Finn. Here on That's How I Remember It, we often talk about music. So I wanted to mention DistroKid and their new app for iPhone and Android. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. Over a million artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. With this app, you can sign up and pay for a new DistroKid account or sign into an existing one. You can upload new releases. You can get notified when you've earned royalties, edit your account details, check your streaming stats, add lyrics and song credits, edit release metadata, and so much more. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, backing up on the music thing for a second, because you, more than anyone I know, always are in search of new to you music, like meaning songs that are new to you, but it doesn't tend to be new bands. It's, it's very specific era. And, um, every once in a while, I'll find something that I think is going to impress you from like 1972. And I send you and you're like, Oh yeah, I know this, but here's three other songs by that artist. Does that connect to a certain, to memories of, of a time with you? And, um, is, is that something that like, is that what it stokes in your, in your mind? I think so. I think that, you know, you can call it station wagon rock because it reminds you of being in the back of some mom's station wagon in 1974 on your way to school and the carpenters are playing. So, you know, that Coke commercial when we were young, the new seekers, I want, I'd like to buy the world. I find that comforting to me, maybe because that was such a easy time in our lives. And uh, that sound, you know, that monkey sound that I found, I search it everywhere. And so of course it led me to the Beatles, but like I'm, you know, and I also, I feel like, you know, music is pure to me. So, so movies sometimes or TV shows, now that I actually have worked in the business for 27 years, I start watching it like a writer. What's the structure? What's the act out? But if I could find a song that I've never heard of from 1970, and I, I, I just, I've never heard it. Like it's pure to me. It's, it's no different than when I, you know, got turned on to a song when I was 12 connected to this do you what was i think i remember but what, what was the first concert you went to like real real concert very first real concert i ever went to was the police synchronicity tour my brother took me in 1980 it was the summer of 83 right before we went into uh seventh grade and i will say this when when i got into the car he had a present for me and he pulled out a big lighter and i said what's this for <laughs> he goes people hold them up and sure enough during like you know, Roxanne or whatever. I was like, I held my lighter. Where was the show? Uh, Met Center. Met Center in Bloomington, Minnesota, where the, uh, where the, it was the indoor one, like where the hockey played, right? Yeah. It's where the North Stars played. It was the, it was the, it was the classic Met show. Do you remember anything non-musical about it? Like the people around you or anything like that? It was like, you know, cause my father made me go to sp- like my father, I would always go to sporting events with because he was a big sports fan. So it was the first time I had seen going to something that felt young. 
you know, that felt different. And all of a sudden, like, people were smoking weed and cigarettes and there was a vibe and it was like a party and we had great seats. It was like, you know, I had wanted it. Having loved music your whole life, you're a child, you want to go see your first rock concert, but you're also frightened. So one of the things is I found it less fright, more, less scary than I thought it would be. Yeah. Um, and then there was this, like, you can't believe this is really happening. Like, oh my, I was so into the police that year. And I was like, that's actually Sting. He's actually in Minneapolis. Right, right. I mean, that was a big thing back then. And so I, I want to ask you about two shows in particular um, that we attended together, sort of. The first is, is this. And, you know, we started going to quote unquote shows like punk rock shows. Yeah. I was just talking to Fred Armisen about this, about, you know, the way we would get the information back then, being older, is that literally we would see things on telephone poles. I, I was going to say, yeah, the, 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 it, the right in front of or folk would be that or, or ragstock. There would be the, the, the post. Yeah. And I would say, if you come to these coordinates to this place at this time, you can see this band. And that didn't even always work because sometimes the band wouldn't show up. Yeah. Like that, that was a, like that. It wasn't like, it was like a rain out in baseball. Like, Oh, did you went to the show and because there was no internet, you didn't know until you got there, which is fascinating now. Yeah, no, I, I, I think we, we waited like three hours for the exploited who never came, but you, because there was also no cell phone. So if they didn't pull over to call someone, you were like, we don't know where they are. It, they might show up, you know? Yeah, they might be in England. The show that I remember is like, you know, if we were making a, a movie about our teenage lives, this one, that, one the one thing that comes up is, is the live it show, Descendants Final Tour. Oh, yeah. Summer 1987. With MIA and the Doughboys, and I have the shirt. I still have the all shirt or the descendant shirt. Do you think the show was that good? Why do you think we was that was the peak in our memory of sort of shows? I'm going to tell you why. That was the peak because we had gone to a bunch, but this was one of the first ones where I could drive us. So we so there wasn't a torturous Kafka esque way to get there. It wasn't like your mom could drop us at this bus station, then we'll go to the Arby's to get picked up by his dad. I drove us there. It was summer. It was the summer of driver's licenses. It and then they came and then it was like it was one and like every band was awesome. And the descendants, I feel like were perfect for you and me because I could sometimes like some of the hardcore was too hardcore. But the Descendants were the first band that started to sing about what it felt like to be a nerd who everyone ignored and he felt like a loser. And even though I didn't communicate to that to you because that would have not been cool in the 80s, I was like, that's me. I'm a nerd who feels like a loser. You're my band and I'm fucking here and I got a license. And I think we had a pack of merit. We had a pack of merits with us. <laughs> Remember I was in the merits, those yellow ones. Yeah, merits. They were they're pretty light, right? I don't know. Joel Levitin had them, and I was like, "Oh, I'm going to do what he has." Yeah. Well, I have a, a a second part of the theory, which is when the Descendants at that show announced they're recording a live album. I think it validated it for us. That was live at Budokan. You know, it was it was our movie, but suddenly it was everyone's movie, and it it made us seem that much cooler because even though the record seemed like a pipe dream like you know it's easy to say you're recording a live album 
a year later, it comes out and we're like, I was there. Yeah. And people don't understand is that like when you lived in Minneapolis, we couldn't get vans at the time. We used to have to get, I had these vans. I would get my dad's credit card at the back of Thrasher and I'd call Skates on Hater, Val Surf, and they would have to send them. So to, so for this band to choose Minneapolis, like, I mean, that made the news. Just like when Bruce Springsteen filmed the video, like that was like a huge claim to pop culture fame for Minneapolis at the time. Yeah, and Bruce Springsteen uh, recorded that uh, Dancing in the Dark video at, uh, he started the Born in the USA tour in, in the St. Paul Civic Center. And uh, that did feel like, I mean, and which is funny too, because meanwhile, Prince was, you know, doing Purple Rain and, and the replacements in Husker Du were doing really great critically. There was a strange moment where Minneapolis was kind of music critically the center of the music world. Now, it didn't feel like that necessarily if you were in eighth grade. No. Well, we also weren't as aware. I mean, Prince, we knew, you know, because he was so big and he was like our hometown hero. So it was like, that was rad. But it always felt like, you know, he w- he was on MTV. You were, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> this yeah. is actually a band from another place choosing Minneapolis to record their album and a California band, no less. So it was like, oh, that's a lot of cred coming at us. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it, it was it was like, well, how, they chose to do us to do it here. Speaking in California. So this is something I wanted to get into. In 1994, I came at the beginning of 1994 to visit you. You'd lived, you moved to LA and uh, right after graduation, 93. So you'd lived there a little bit. And I'm going to tell my version of this. We'd been hanging out for a, a number of days and I believe it was a Saturday night and we had plans to do something, but we saw Thelonious Monster was going to be playing at Raji's, I believe. And we th- talked about going. And what's interesting to me when I look back at this story is that I'd already been to CBGB's. I'd already been to Boston hardcore shows. I don't know why I would have been really nervous to go to a um, LA Hollywood show, but I think I was very intimidated by it for some reason. LA seemed scarier or um, it was was something I didn't know, but we still kind of considered going to the Thelonious Monster show. And if I remember right, we kind of settled on, in my version, that we drive by and see what it looked like. And in my version, we drove by and sort of decided it looked kind of dead and maybe like a little frightening or something. So we just decided to bag it and do something else. Your version that recently came up is is slightly different. Can you tell me yours? Yeah. So, well, it's interesting because I had been living there and it was a summer and I'd seen a lot of bands, but they played places like the Palladium, the Whiskey, the Troubadour. And this was at Raji's, which I'd only been to once. And Raji's was kind of like, I I can't even speak to it because I'm not from LA, but in my Minnesota view, it was a little rougher. It was a little divier. It was like underneath an apartment or a hotel. And so it was Saturday night. And even though I had seen Thelonious Monster and they they weren't like some scary band, I don't, it, it was also after the earthquake. So everything in LA felt like weird. So we drove there and it was on sunset and we parked the car. I found good parking, which was always my, I'm sure that's what drove most of this was I, cause you know, there was no Uber. So you had to drive everywhere in LA and you just had to risk it. So I was like, ah, if I don't find parking, I'm not fucking doing it. And, um, and that is true. 
Craig knows I love parking. And then we got there and it said closed because the place was fucking demolished from the 94 earthquake, which just was a month before. So the whole place was in tatters. You forget that you came out literally one month after the biggest earthquake. I absolutely remember the earth. I don't forget that part. I remember all the damage. We, you know, we drove around looking at the earthquake damage. I don't remember this part of the show. And, or, you know, and what I guess is I'm really fascinated by, because we, we agree on so much, but we have this, like this event where, well, we have, well, we have, we have, we have to, we have to search it out. There has to be, there has to be a Raji something, someone out there. Some Craig Finn fan has to be able to track that down. We'll look into this. This is going to be um, a second part of the I podcast. literally remember us right in front of the door seeing a post that said close, place closed, you know, for, and then, by the way, never opened again. And the whole building's gone now. It's all gone. And it's like, you know, some strip mall or something. Amazing. Well, we're going to find out. Um, but speaking of this, so. You've been in LA for for a long, long time now. What you moved to? What so? It's funny. I'm sorry, but it's funny. I thought the show you were going to say was the Cure in '86. Because to me, what was interesting was was that was the first time I felt like you and I saw a whole new world open up for us when we went to that Cure concert in '86. We saw the Cure at um, uh, Northrop Auditorium, and it was the Standing on the Beach tour. And I think what was great about that. I think for both of us personally was we started to make friends, other friends that were going to be there. So we were running into people that we knew from different parts of our lives who, who liked us. Yeah, no, it was great. And you're at a place where people were like, Oh yeah, we're into the same things as you, which was not a Dinah high school. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, that was, not, I mean, not that to was a great it, Not to hijack it. I'm just saying that like, there's memory, there's a divergence in memory. Because when I think of this, I've seen probably a hundred shows with you, at least. I mean, in the 40 years we've been friends, at least a hundred, um, I- including like high school bands at keg parties. But like that one to me was one of our, t- if you said, what are the greatest hits of our concerts? That's, that's to me, maybe one or two. I thought of that one before we got on, but I, I just didn't have as much of a, uh, I, I almost feel like we're too in agreement on that. Yeah. One. Because that one was a 10. That's the truth. Yeah. <laughs> it was an A, yeah. it was an A plus. There's nothing to critique. I, I, another thing I've been talking about with people is so there's this idea that like, okay, so you have like, um, the way memory fuels art. So for instance, Paul Westerberg uses his memory to write the album, let it be. And then it comes out, and then we all say, yeah, well, that was the fall that Let It Be came out and I was doing this. So it's almost like he his memory creates this art and that becomes a benchmark. And I was thinking about Tron Legacy, which you um, you and Adam wrote. It's obviously a sequel. And I remember I was curious what your memories of the first Tron were and how do you think it kind of affected your approach? Well, it was interesting because I remember being super excited to go see it. And I was visiting Mankato and one of my very first friends, this, the, uh, Joe Gallup, and we went to go see it in 1982. And we sat through it and neither of us wanted to let the other know we didn't understand it. So that was, <laughs> so of course we left saying it was the best movie. And I remember there was an arcade next door and we could, they had the Tron machine. And I died within 20 seconds. Like it was like that. <laughs> dead it was like ten dollars dead and so it what i think was interesting with tron is what always stayed with me was the font and that font (laughs) 
I mean, that font was like there was something about the font in the world, and it was in, it was inviting, and and I and I loved the idea that you could go to a world, a different world, and do it. And so it it had always stayed with me. It was very interesting. And the way we got the job was we just went in for um what's called in Hollywood a general meeting. That's when you just have a sit down with an executive. We had to sit down at Disney movies with this executive who was a big Lost fan. And he's like, oh, man, we've been trying to do Tron for 30 years. And we're like, Tron? And all those, you know, those, those memories, that font came back. And um, I was like, that, we want that one, you know? And, and literally, though, it was one of the very first times the idea for the movie came to me and Adam in the room in a general meeting. And that became the basis of the movie. It was like, it, it was a weird, I don't know if you've ever had, like you just felt like, I don't know why, but the whole song came out. And then you can't, you can never do that for another 10 years. But in that one moment, the entire idea for that sequel just came to us in that meeting. Well, well, the beginning, <laughs> the beginning log line, you know, that the idea of the father would be the same age, and then you realize he was trapped in there. That all the other stuff was a, you know, of course, development in that a collaborative effort. I had a memory about, you know, speaking of art as a benchmark. You know, you made that movie; it was a big deal. You'd been on TV, but this was your first feature movie. And as your friend, I felt like I need to go see it opening weekend. And I went in there, and it was Tron Legacy 3D. And we'll see Union Square Theater in, in Manhattan. And I sat down and the kid in front of me smelled so much like weed, like he, he, the whole theater could have smelled him. And the first 3D thing happened. He said pretty loud, man, that's some good ass 3D. Yeah. <laughs> and everyone around laughed. And uh, I'll always think of, of Tron Legacy is that it should have been the tagline could have been. This is some good ass 3D. I mean, that's that's what we always go for is some good ass 3D. <laughs> I also saw I also, you know, I remember also seeing Clueless in the theater. Speaking of a benchmark, because I believe that was your first credit. Yes. That, assistant to true? the producer. I was an assistant uh, to the producers of Clueless. And it was my very, very first credit. And uh, and to this day, I got special thanks on the soundtrack. And I have not made an album since. Uh, maybe maybe a Once Upon a Time soundtrack. That's not true. I'm sure there's lost. But like, that was my very first credit, assistant to the producer. And you had to wait, you know, 10 minutes after to see me. It was very small. But that was a, that was a, that was a really cool thing to be a part of. That was a big thing. And, th you know, you've obviously done a lot more since. But, you know, when you think about, like, Once Upon a Time, like, it's a fairy tale story. Is how, you know, is part of the challenge trying to make the magic make it magic like the like how you felt when you watched those films early like is that is that you know a fairy tale story like that uh, i think about the disney you know on sunday nights the disney thing would come on and um yeah you want that feeling like the very first time at disneyland or the very first time you heard those fairy tales they were scary they were dark they were uplifting i think a lot of also interesting is Adam and I wanted to approach the fairy tales, as we said, almost like an Amblin movie. Steven Spielberg, who you know we were lucky enough to work with on Amazing Stories for Apple, 
was a huge influence for us. So we said, well, what if we, you know, that's why Henry was the 10 year old who was on a mission on his own. And what we wanted to build to was a moment that, that gave you hope, you know, because if you remember, it was coming out of the financial crisis of 2008, this was 2010. And if you've watched the pilot, you know, there's this moment where the kid says there's a curse in the town and the mom doesn't believe him. The time has stopped and there's this big clock in the town. And at the end, he looks up and it clicks. And so that summer, we aired it for the first time at Comic-Con and I snuck into the crowd and I watched it. And when we got to that moment and it clicked and the entire audience went, I was like, we did it. (laughs) You know, we gave that moment. And so every episode, we would be like, where's the clock tick moment? Where's the clock tick? Right. That's, that's, I mean, that's, that's gotta be a memory that's really special. Um, you know, knowing you, I'm uh, obviously followed your career closely because we're friends and you know, you worked since we got out of college. Um, but lost was the first thing that like went wild. Right. You know I mean? And not many TV shows have been bigger than lost. When you look back on the period from like showing up to LA to the beginning of lost, does it feel like a whirlwind or a slog? today it's a whirlwind then it was a slog it felt like because on your way up you don't know if you're gonna succeed and so the fear of do i have to go back home and let everyone know i failed is really pushing you and also i think what happens in hollywood i don't know if this happens in music but like if you write one thing and people like it you're put in that lane. So Adam and I wrote a very personal romantic comedy that got made us signed. And so we started to do these teen shows on the WB. We did uh, Popular with Ryan Murphy. We did Felicity. We did One Tree Hill. And I just, I wasn't, my heart wasn't into it, but we kept getting work. So I felt like that was it. And we ended up on a show. Uh, we had met JJ from Felicity, but uh, Carlton Cuse, who's a mentor of mine, looked at us and he said, you guys aren't writing what you like. And we said, what are you talking about? He goes, you don't like this. I could tell you're not writing what you like. And he's like, he had just got uh, over to loss. He's like, I know, you know, JJ, I think you're going to love Damon and you're going to come here. And my first thought, even though I loved those kind of shows and genre was complete insecurity. The, the, the 12 year old you met in junior high from Medina high school came out. And I said to Adam pass, we'll get fired. I can't do that. Adam goes, we're not, passing on the show. I was like, pass. We got on it and it felt like, oh, we can do this. This is what we were meant to do. And I didn't realize it at first, but it was like, that's when we found our sound. Amazing. So there's all along the way, there's things that don't get made. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's, there's things that just go, you know, for whatever reason, go away. Worlds that remain unbuilt, so to speak. How do you deal with that? Oh, uh, that is that is soul crushing. Um, you can work on something for two years and then one person decides. Nah-uh. And what's hard about Hollywood is that it's a, based on opinion. There's no fact. If I worked on Wall Street and I got fired, it's because I lost money. If I'm promoted, it's because I made money. In Hollywood, it could be like, nah, I didn't get it. <laughs> right. What? But everyone else gets it. Yeah, but I'm the boss, so fuck you. And I think 
it's hard because no one likes to be told the universe is saving you. No one wants to be told you're meant for something better because the truth is, is it hurts and you don't get it and it shakes you and you have to, to understand it. But sometimes when I look back at some of the things that at the time were my biggest failures, had they not happened, it wouldn't have led me to here. So, so what's really hard at the time is to not completely collapse today is to be like, okay, this is, this is unfortunately the business you chose. Yeah. Yeah. Are you like, as, as we both get older, um, do you, are you mindful? Do you ever say like, this is great. Like, or I, I need to remember this, you know, I, I am doing something. Are you able to do that? Yeah. I, you know, it's, I do it a lot. Um, I, I feel very fortunate that I got to live my dream. And so there are times where you're, I will take a moment just to say, okay, this is, this is pretty great, you know? And, and I think you have to, or else you're just chasing it. You know, you're always just in the fight. So I got two, two other, two more questions. They're very specific sort of geography questions. The first is this, uh, you've been in LA a long time since 1993. What's a thing in LA that's that you know now now you have memories that are 25 years old in LA what's a thing in LA that you miss like is there a place that 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 you miss oh yeah <laughs> um you know there there the things that you usually miss as far as like a place like there's a couple restaurants that i miss that were were you know a bar here and there there was this italian restaurant called al gelato and it was in, it was like just a little gelato place, but they had the best thing. But I had a lot of memories there of like being young or going there. So, so that I totally miss. I miss, there was this great bar on Sunset and I can't remember. I want to say it was Coach and Horses and they had an outdoors where you could smoke. And I, that was like, you know, Friday night, we all met there for like two years. There's a Coach and Horses. Yeah. It was outside. Right. And and so you, it felt like it was like a keg party, even though it was a bar. Um, I miss, I miss like, I miss sunset looking like sunset. You know, when I first moved here in 93, it was still the late eighties. And, and so now everything in LA has been strip mauled and everything's being torn down and maybe it needs to. But when I first moved here, like there was, there was the all American burger from fast times. There, there's like a liquor mart you know, sign that looks like Jim Morrison's in there buying Coors. And so for me, I'm always in search of the old LA and the old Hollywood. And so having lived here for so long, there's like each decade brings its own thing. All right. So that's great. Um, the similar question, we both grew up in the suburbs of Minneapolis. You haven't lived there in a long time. I haven't lived, lived there since 2000. My family is not there anymore. Um, so I feel, I think we probably both feel on some level out of touch with Minneapolis, um, but we still have love in our hearts. Yeah. Same question. If you could walk into one, one building, one establishment, in Minneapolis, uh, that's not there anymore. Um, what would it be? I'm going to go with Northern Lights record store on the corner of seventh and Hennepin. And I would love to just be able to go a, and look at the wall where all the member, they had the posts, like the posters and the announcements but I wish I could go upstairs and look at the videos. I want to go upstairs. Uh, Northern Lights was a, was probably, it was right a block from 7th uh, from 1st Avenue. And it was a, it was like, it was a, just a brilliant record store that Craig and I would just, we would dream about going, but upstairs was videos. And you 
there was no way we could rent a video because it took so hard to get downtown. So like we would go up there and we would be, there was no internet. We couldn't type in black flag and realize there was four different, you know, SST documentaries. That was what you saw. And what we saw at Northern Lights was there was a whole world that we couldn't get to. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I was, I, I, I think that's a great one. Um, I was thinking also, uh, the Loring bar. Wait, is that gone? Uh, oh, that's long gone. The Loring bar. Yeah. But it used to, but I thought they changed it to that restaurant. It's still there. Oh, there that's there. But remember the Loring bar had like, the, Oh yeah. Like it was, a, it was its own thing, you know, that it shows you how long I've been, haven't been in Minneapolis. I would also add the <sighs> Nankin. So the Nankin was a Chinese restaurant, which was my first exposure uh, to underage drinking because they would accept any, anything, a, a student ID that you strap together with a crayon. They'd be like three wanderer punches coming up. <laughs> the wanderer's punch was, was the, was a potent drink they served. And then Nankin was at one point, one of Minneapolis's most fine, finest restaurants, I think, you know, and then the other, the other great, place that i never went to but i remember driving by that i think we all miss is um professor munchies uh good time emporium which was like i think uh like a hippie diner basically my mom took me once and she hated it because she thought it was all burnouts and i i mean it it had probably the coolest logo we'd ever seen and it did it felt like it was the the last remaining relic of the 60s in uptown yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a, that was kind of the, what I'm thinking is, is when in the early eighties, there was still remnants of the sixties in, in some of these places, if you went to a record store or a hip hip neighborhood. Or folk had that, you know, you know what else I would add now that I'm older that I never, I would have never said this, but now that I'm, now that I'm 50, Nolwood. I want, don't you wish you could just go to Nolwood in its prime and just go to the arcade and two music stores and see a movie and that eighties culture. It was so in our face that we didn't ever appreciate it because we were too busy being punk rock. But now I kind of want to, I want to just go back to Nolwood and walk through it again. I mean, Nolwood mall was, was by both of our houses. It was, it had a movie theater and it had two record stores mm-hmm. and an arcade. It also, I mean, the, the movie theater at Knollwood is where we saw things like Better Off Dead, Gung Ho, Spies Like Us, Three Amigos. It probably launched, probably launched your career. Um, it did. And anyways, this is a great place to wrap up because I wanted to say this. We used to sit around and talk about how I was going to be in a band and you're going to be a TV writer. TV writing we found is much more lucrative. So congrats on being the smart one. <laughs> so congrats on being the smart one, but also thank you so much for joining me here. Um, that's how I remember it. You've been an amazing guest. Well, and thank you because what people don't know is I wanted to be a rock star. This was my fallback career. The first time I brought my guitar over to Craig's basement and he could listen to a song and play it, I realized Oh, no, but God bless you, because 40 years later, I, you know, get to sit on the stage and see your point of view a lot. And that to me is amazing. So that is, you know, it's all full circle. Well, that's a great place to leave it. Thanks so much. Thanks, Craig. Thank you so much to my old friend, Eddie Kitsis, for being a guest here on That's How I Remember It. 
If you're wondering how the Hold Steady got a mention on Lost Season 2, you might have found your answer. Who knows? And I really hope we'll get to the bottom of the mystery of the Thelonious Monster Show at some point. Thanks to Dadgrass for sponsoring this episode. Visit their website and enter discount code FIN for a 20% discount. Most importantly, thank you for listening. I'm really enjoying these talks, and I appreciate all the positive feedback people have been giving me. Please subscribe if you haven't already, and stay tuned for some amazing guests in the coming weeks on That's How I Remember It. <laughs>